Welcome on a Wednesday night. Uh, my good friend up north is joining us. Uh, getting ready for a snowstorm. Uh, welcome to Generation Movies. My name is J.W. Caldwell. Tell me you got a snowstorm coming, correct, Rich? Uh, tomorrow, yeah. Uh, supposedly rolling in like late morning or so. Um, and we're under, I think, a winter storm watch until Friday afternoon or something like that. Something crazy. I, I'm just working from home for the next couple of days, staying in the sweats and, you know, doing a lot but of Rich cooking. Rich is such a film, a film buff online genius oh. that he doesn't. Oh, yeah. Part of the Philadelphia film critics circle. Right. Um, yep. OK, so how was your week? Good week. Um, my week was good. Can't say the same for Henry Cavill. <laughs> I, maybe Henry Cavill made, maybe he survived something he didn't need to. Okay. So what Rich is talking about. Yeah. Breaking news. Literally. Breaking news. Last... It actually, it actually just happened like in the last two hours. Um, Cause um, I just got done with loud nerdy. And then I, I, you sent me a message. So it kind of yeah. happened in the last two hours. So yeah. we're going to. James tweeted this at 849. Easter. Yeah, I was already off, so I, I, you can't hold loud and nerdy responsible for this. But basically, what Rich is talking about. Um, first off, welcome everybody. Um, we'll we'll get we'll do the news first, but let's do the important stuff first, so Rich doesn't yell at me again. He yelled at me that one time, and I never, I never forgot it. And I just I don't want to be hit with the dog the nose again like a dog. Um, okay, so if you like the India Escape Network, uh, we have a bunch of very talented people on the on this network. Uh, a lot of shows going every night. We have great people running things. If you like the content, you can subscribe on our YouTube channel. Uh, this show now has its own YouTube channel as well, so please like and subscribe. Um, also, there's a Facebook page. Uh, Indie Escape Network on the Facebook page, also very prominent. Uh, there is a poll on that Facebook page as we speak that asks the begs the question, what James Bond film made by Sean Connery would you like us uh, I should say canon, canonical James Bond film made by the Broccoli's. Uh, uh, would you like us to to look at in a generation movie kind of way is the best way to describe it. The way we look at everything, we would break it down. Um, and the options are there. They're all available to you. The posters are there. Super nice. Have a really nice write-up. Please go to the Facebook page and vote on that if you want to get whatever Bond film you've got. Got a couple votes. Not a lot. I'd like to get some more. Goldfinger mm -hmm. already has a vote, of course, because it is Goldfinger. Um, but in breaking news, before we get to the movie tonight, which I'm very excited about, um, yeah. and I think anybody who grew up in the 80s is super excited about it, although not necessarily for the same reasons, but we'll talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. Breaking news out of Hollywood is Ooh. that, as many people know, James Gunn and Peter Safran have taken control of the DC uh, Cinematic Universe for David Zaslav and Warner Brothers Discovery. And they have several missions ongoing, but basically an option to get 10 years into it, a la Marvel. Basically, they're they're kind of building it, and Gunn comes from the Marvel family. He's coming over after Guardians of the Galaxy 3 in May, but he's already started working. And what's going to happen is we've, we've seen a series of news stories in the last couple weeks. Last week, it was a big news story that Patty Jenkins was not being was not being retained, or her version of Wonder Woman three isn't being retained, which led mm -hmm. to questions about Gal Gadot. Patty Jenkins responded today. That was part of Loud and Nerdy. She responded today where she said, "I'd never want to walk away from Wonder Woman. I, it's one of my favorite 
things I've ever produced. And the last movie kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I want to make sure that we get to progress with stories about Diana. So there's that. Um, earlier in the season and October, I think it has to be prefaced that Henry Cavill made a very large, very big appearance at the end of Black Adam. That was kind of, was kind of awesome. I mean, it's probably the best part about Black Adam in every conceivable <laughs> way. Not to mention the fact that they finally did the justice of giving Henry Cavill the John Williams score undertones on his sequence, which is nice. Um, and basically, so they brought a lot of stuff back and did, did things, but tonight, Rich on generation movie, drop your bombshell, drop the story that just dropped from James Gunn and confirmed by Henry Cavill on his Instagram page. Yes. James Gunn. Um, just like we said, a little over an hour and 20 minutes ago now, uh, confirmed that, um, while they can't announce all of their plans yet, that will come in the new year. Um, he Gunn is writing a new Superman film. Um, An origin doesn't story. Doesn't Not, say it's going to be, uh, uh, well, he doesn't say origin story. Younger he years. Says, Our story, and I'm quoting here right from the tweet, um, in the initial stages, our story will be focusing on an earlier part of Superman's life. So the character will not be played by Henry Cavill. So that's a bit obviously Cavill has been let go from the role of Superman. Now, I do want to point out that when there was the whole big to do about um, Cavill returning for um, Black Adam, that was before Gunn and Safran had taken had taken over. Yeah. Well, the other the other thing, um, the other interesting thing that you you can kind of piece together. And it was also part of a Variety article in the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. Saffron and Gunn do view Matt Reeves' Batman, the Batman, with Robert Pattinson as a remarkable success. And they wouldn't, they, there, are, there is ongoing talks that he will be part of the DC Universe proper. Um, that's, a rumor, that's a rumor, right? That's, that's, that's a rumor. Gunn shot that down earlier today. Okay. Okay. So, so what Matt Reeves is doing over, you know, with Batman in his little corner of the world is its own separate thing. Um, well, but th that's interesting to me. I think that might, that might be a black, red herring. That might be I a red know. herring. Because think about it: if you're doing a younger Superman, and this this version of Batman is hella younger, right? Pattinson is really young mm -hmm. for the Batman, right? He's just at the beginning of his of his crime fighting days. We we don't have a we have villains are established, but they're not necessarily there yet. And you know whoever they pick for Superman, I mean, this is going to be the biggest casting call. Oh, it's going to be insane! And it's going to be crazy. Everybody and yeah, their brother is going to want to be Superman. Now, Cavill did go on to uh, Instagram uh, and within confirmed. the last hour as well. Confirms, you know, everything he said. Um, and, you know, again, I'm going to quote right from his post here. I have just had a meeting with James Gunn and Peter Safran, and it's sad news, everybody, everyone. I will, after all, not be returning as Superman. After being told by the studio to announce my return back in October, prior to their hire, this news isn't the easiest, but that's life. The changing of the guard is something that happens. I respect that James and Peter have a universe to build. I wish them and all involved with a new universe 
the best of luck and the happiest of fortunes. And yeah, so he sound, he understands this is how Hollywood sometimes works. And he also and, he also has a great quote in his Instagram about the idea that um, while while he's no longer playing Superman, it doesn't mean that the cape and the cowl aren't there, and they are like not the cape and the cowl. The cape the cape still stands for the same things that it stood for before. Mm-hmm. The idea that Superman, while he may be gone as Superman, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? That Superman is still yeah. there. What he stands for is still there. So I think this is an interesting kind of like turn of events. Um, but what I said to you before we got in the show tonight, and then we'll get to some comments. What I said to you in the show is I think Saffron and Gunn got there and realized that the giant gangrenous limb that is the DC, the Snyder reverse uh, fandom and the Snyderverse contingent and everything that's kind of seeping through the pores of DC, they just have to cut that thing off and cauterize the wounds. If you have Cavill, because here's what happens. Cavill comes in, he plays Superman. Let's say it's the best Superman movie that's ever been, right? Not that it could ever happen because Lord rest his soul, Christopher Reeve is the greatest Superman of all time. Um, and And but, just this past couple of days was the... Um, 44th anniversary of the release of Superman, oh, Superman the, movie. the movie. Yeah, we're and, talking about that. Saturday, this is really Saturday good. Night, put my feet up and watch that Saturday night and just loved it again. But All what time. I would say is I think that limb has to be cut off. Because if, let's say Cavill comes in, plays Superman for Gunn and Saffron, right? Does one or two movies. They're great movies. Then what you have is you have competing factions. Well, look what they did with Superman versus look what, look what Snyder did. And the Snyder group is very, you and I both know this, and you and I, they're one of the most toxic, horrible fan bases going. Not all of them, but the loud portion of them is. And honestly, I wish, you know, the some of the ones who weren't sending death threats to um, uh, Warner Brothers executives and... Causing uh, them to hire extra security. Yeah, and um, an internal threat viewed as an internal threat, threatening, threatening, threatening reviewers, threatening, you know, news reporters, things like that for, you know, lying, you know, and, you know, completely losing their shit over like some of the Hollywood reporting, Hollywood reporter uh, reportage about uh, what had happened uh, behind the scenes with everything. Um, yeah, those guys, you know, the, the other fans who weren't doing that stuff really should have stepped up more to police their own, frankly. Um, and you know, they're but, just like, well, we can do anything. I was like, you're kind of tacitly endorsing, but, that. but this also like a couple things that, that Gunn and, and Saffron doing this, this is like ripping the bandaid off. Although they have a very large wound underneath because they still have four movies, Rich. I talked about this earlier. We're talking about Zaslov. We're talking about Zaslov trying to cut money. We have four movies that are still in the pipeline that are definitely coming out in 2023. Right, you have mm-hmm. Shazam and the Fury of the Gods. You have mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jesus, Shazam and the Fury of the Gods. You have the Flash. You have Blue, Blue Beetle. Beetle, and you have uh, Aquaman and the Lost City of Atlantis. Right, mm-hmm. so you cannot say they're going to be terrible, and you cannot because you don't want to submarine those movies before we get there. Right, no. I mean the Flash already is like kind of toxic, and we're we're going to be fighting about that the moment the, to the moment we release that. But mm-hmm. the other movies haven't done anything bad. And Saffron 
is internally tied to both Shazam and Shazam 2, right? Saffron is, is yeah. part of his baby. His actually, the reason he got this job was because he steer he spearheaded more two of the more successful DC films, the Aquaman film and, and Shazam, right? So he doesn't want to submarine those movies, uh, you know, not, not to take it away. It's a it's a really tough position for Gunn and Saffron to be in. They're gonna step on toes, and they're gonna they're gonna hurt some people. But it doesn't matter if they pull everything out of the fire, Rich. Mm-hmm. If they pull it out of the DC the Snyderverse fire, nobody will care. Nobody will give a at, shit. At this point, I think um, you know if they kind of. I mean, Flash is the first week of June, I think. I kind of wish they'd push Flash back to November, roll, roll everything first, and then have flat. Hopefully, Flash would end with some kind of universe reset, and then we can go forward from there. Because I think that's honestly what what we're looking at at this point. Um, well, I think they, uh, I, I think they already have something filled for the they already have something filled for the end of Aquaman. They already have something filmed for the end of Aquaman. So I, I think yeah. we're going to, that's going to be the, the end of this and the reset. Cause they're already talking about like gun. I had one interview where he said, Momo is great as Aquaman, but I didn't envision him as Aquaman when I was thinking about casting. And it's like, well, who are you thinking about? He's like, I think Momo would make a great Lobo. And it's like, he would make a great Lobo. That is a true statement. Um, but I, but don't, so- I don't see if you're starting your, your your cinematic you don't universe. Cast anybody right. again. Yeah, throw don't throw don't throw a Lobo in until like about year four or five. Um, but we have some comments. Let's let's do some comments and then we'll get to uh, tonight at hand. Ken but McCartney. Just, good evening, friends. Good evening, Ken. I'll, I'll finish your statement. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. I honestly think we're gonna see a hard reboot. Um, oh, it's gonna be yeah, a, it's gonna be it's gonna be drastic. Uh, yeah, and. Because I, I think what happened was they took. Fortunately, that's the only way to get out of this mess at this point, which which sucks because I have loved Shazam. I love Shazam. I uh, was looking forward to. I'm looking forward to Shazam and the Fury of the Gods. And the thing that bums me out though is we won't get a third Shazam movie because I don't think that promise of the um, end credit scene in Shazam in the first Shazam movie with um, Mr. Cavill. Mind show. Yeah. Oh my God, that was incredible. Mr. Mind, for God's sakes, I want to see the little worm with the telepathic well, powers. And maybe, you know, maybe that's the key. Stuff. Like finding where Gun and Saffron are going to yeah. take things from. I think we are going to get a hard reboot, but I think Shazam. I will say Shazam and Shazam: and The Fury of the Gods, and even to a lesser extent Aquaman. Even though Aquaman's from the Snyderverse, they have a different vibe. They have more of a gun vibe. Yeah, they're and, fun. And Peter Saffron vibe. You know what I mean? So I maybe it's not as hard as we think it's going to be. Maybe they'll pick and choose, but I I think you mm-hmm. the reason you get rid of these people, the reason you get rid of Cavill and Momoa and Godot, and you have to get rid of the limb that has gangrene in it. You have to get because Snyder is so negative, and everything Snyder does is all backwards, and it, it's just he's just like sitting in his house. With like reels that say, you know, lost Justice League footage and causing all kinds of chaos. And I just think they're going to come in and I think they got in there, Rich, and and to God, my right hand to God. I think they got in there and just said, this is a bigger fucking mess than 
you know, like I think think about a guy that's worked with Kevin Feige for 10 years, go walking into DC offices and just looking at things going, well, where's the wall? What wall? We don't have a wall. You don't have a wall with the storyline? Mm-hmm. Nope. No, no, we don't have that. Whatever filmmaker comes in, they just make whatever the fuck they want. But what about the overarching story about the whole universe? No, we don't have a wall. Do you have a dry uh, erase board? Nope. Don't have any of that. Nope. I, 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 I'm, I would take issue a little bit with that. There has been reportage that uh, Hamada had been working towards doing some sort of variation on Crisis on Infinite Earths at some point. And so he might have had an idea of how he wanted to get there. I don't think it was readily apparent. I think we were probably too... Uh, the difference, the difference in, between in, a Hamada board and a Fahey board is Fahey has all the plot arcs and Amada has crisis question mark. That's that's <laughs> it's uh, that, you'll never get me to believe anything else. From, uh, it's the underpants gnomes from South Park. You know, it's true. Steel underpants question mark profit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so good evening, friends. Good evening, Ken. Glad you're not banned on Facebook. We appreciate you having here. We have a storm coming in on Friday. Yeah, big storm. We have. Uh, we're going to be down in the 60s. It's going to be rough for us down here. Oh, my um, God. They're canceling school, I bet. <laughs> Joe Ridgely, good evening, gentlemen. I'm a huge Superman fan and a collector. Didn't Cavill turn down the new season of The Witcher for Superman 2? Yes, no. he did. He didn't? No, he was, he was not happy, and he decided not to return for season three. He was very upset with the production. Yeah, I think, I think Rich is right. It's more the Superman thing fell into his lap afterwards. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there was a lot of fight, backfighting on that, on that show. Uh, we have the multiverse now. We can do any story. They can do Man of Steel 2 and do Super... No. Cavill's done. There is no Man of Steel 2. It is gone. Um, the meeting happened today. It is over. People are, you know, Snyderverse people are out committing Harry Carey as we speak. Kathy Frazier. I mean, technically it makes sense. It's going to be a younger I'm afraid Super... I'm to up Twitter to look, honestly. I'm kind of oh, like... It's going to be... Oh, my God. A bloodbath. I mean, Kathy writes, I mean, technically it makes sense. It's going to be a younger Superman. Why cast Cavill? Yes, but part of it, Kathy, and I think Rich and I would both say and, and, and stay on board with this before we get to the Dark Crystal, which is why we're here. Part of it is that for Rich and I, and I know I'm not speaking for Rich, but I'm going to say what I think, and I think Rich is the same thing. Cavill never got his chance. Mm -hmm. Cavill never got his chance to have a fully visioned Superman movie because Man of Steel has a lot of plot construction problems. Um, and I've talked about it with Rich. My big biggest problem is that Superman is raised by a xenophobic Pa Kent, who is worried about the world looking in. And his Superman Pa Kent death is so, it's such a bastardization of the Superman mythos that it ruins the rest of the movie. Now, there are good parts in the movie. But Pa Kent dying is supposed to show that Superman, he can't save everyone. And the way Pa Kent dies in Man of Steel is, is he dies specifically in a way that Superman could save him. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you this on the Pa Kent death. Again, re, just rewatch <laughs> Superman the movie this weekend for the umpteenth thousandth time. Glenn Ford dying is amazing. Glenn Ford just going, oh no, and dropping out of frame. Just Holding his wrist. Holding his wrist. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. 
And just that one walk, that one walk from the street up to the barn with him and Jeff West as young Clark, as a teenage Clark Kent, uh, being overdubbed by Chris Reeve, um, is, it's a great sequence. It's, you know, just thematically encompasses what Superman is about. And, and then, you know, it ends with that moment where we understand he can't save everybody. Rips my heart out every time. Man of Steel, I see, I see, um, Bull Durham there saying, no, I'm going to walk into a tornado. I think dumbass. That's what I think. It no emotional. Well, and his whole thing, his whole story up to that point. Don't tell anybody about your powers. The government's going to get you. It's a whole, it's a whole thing that kind of Snyder, it 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 permeates throughout the Snyderverse. Uh, one more question, and then we'll start on our movie but, tonight. But yeah, Ka Kathy's right. Why cast Cavill if we're going younger? You want if we're going to, especially if there's going to be a 10, 12 year plan. You're going to want an actor who's going to be not age as rapidly as Cavill, who's already in his 40s. Um, so is the younger so, Superman going to be based on Superman Returns? Been a while since I've seen you. I hope that things are well. <laughs> He's a friend. So, we worked together in uh, the student loan industry. Oh, that's nice. Which is why we both drink now. <laughs> so is the younger Superman going to be based on Superman Returns? Or is his, his, no. no, nobody talks about Superman Returns anymore. Brandon Ruth didn't. Brandon Ruth also didn't get a shot. Anyway, he did in um on the CW when they did that when they did the CW did the crisis. Yeah, uh, yes, that was he was one of the best parts of that. He had the best costume, by the way. A costume oh, was fire. Um, uh, let's see. As long as the new Superman isn't Nicholas Coppola, I got to tell you, um, Joe Ridgely, this is a great comment. As long as the new Superman isn't Nicholas Coppola. Interesting comment, Joe, but I would also say to you, if you've seen, there is a documentary called Super, I think it's called Superman Reborn or whatever. It, it, I, it's called Whatever Happened to Superman Dies or the or what happened What happened to this to the death of Superman? The death of Superman. I got to yeah. tell you, some of the shit Correct. behind the scenes, way more interesting than any of the Superman stuff we got. Now, I'm not a big Tim Burton fan these days. I think Burton is is resting on laurels, and I would also argue to Rich that a lot of Wednesday has nothing to do with Tim Burton. Um, I would too. I, a lot of Wednesday rests firmly on the shoulders of Miller and Goff. Yes, the two masterminds and, behind Smallville. So there's you know, there's a whole Superman connection tonight. Yeah. But that's the key. The key. Um, it, uh, there's not. It wasn't as bad as you think it was. And I'd really watch the documentary because documentary is amazing. Yes, and the uh, the Superman cool. costume that Cage had was insanely cool. It mm -hmm. he looked great in it. Like I, yeah, and they, even they, though he was like a stick figure, um, they show some uh, test footage of Cage as Superman, like flying and landing. And they the also whole, have, that, that whole uh, picture of him in the costume, that costume test picture, where it looks like he's like his like he's stoned because his eyelids are. Uh, it's, he was he was in the middle of a blink. They actually have video footage of that picture being taken. Yeah, and you can see where he's also blinking. the it's concept in that movie was the the villain was going to be Brainiac, and the 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 footage they have of the ship designs super super cool. Um, just a giant skull floating through space, amazing. Eventually stolen and used in Guardians of the Galaxy. Anyway. All ties right. All ties around back. Um, 
Oh, Joe Cena. I love I love that documentary. Anyway, um, tonight <laughs> we're late, but that's okay. Tonight, yeah. Um, sorry, we have one folks. <laughs> yeah, no, but it was a big news thing. Um, tonight we're looking at a quintessential piece of '80s kiddom, a, a fantasy film in the '80s. It's called The Dark Crystal. It is. Um, you know, the, the poster says it all another world, another time and an age in the age of wonder. Um, it is a Jim Henson and Frank Oz production. It is, it is the only, it is still the only fully functional and fully directed puppet film ever made. Like in every, like every, not a single person on screen, not talk, not talking about weird stuff, but it's, well, there's, People in costumes, but they're not actually portraying humans. So, and they're and they're puppets, and even but even when they're portraying the costumes, but it is um it's a great story, and it's it is one of those um, quintessential movies mm -hmm. that if you were raised in the eighties, you saw this film at some point. Um, uh, so join us on as we join. Let's talk production, Rich. Yeah. Um. Jim Henson has forever wanted to do, you know, I don't want to say he was chafing at the idea of being, you know, the Muppets being just kiddie stuff for Sesame Street, but they did start off, you know, uh, as um, more of a nightly, uh, 15 minute nightly show um, in, I believe it was the local DC market in the 60s. And he wanted to get back to making something that was for adults and for families not just kitty stuff. So, you know, he'd been kicking around for a while. Um, they briefly, <laughs> the first season of Saturday Night Live, um, had a recurring uh, segment on the show for the first 13 episodes or, or so called The Land of Gorge. Jim Henson created like this alien world, a uh, couple of characters. And then because of Writers Guild requirements, the Saturday Night Live staff had to be the ones who actually wrote the segments every week. And it wasn't a good mix. Um, but you can see some very embryonic ideas in the Land of Gorge sequences from Saturday Night Live, um, you know, coming to fruition ultimately in Dark Crystal. I was, you know, the idea of, you know, this alien world, um, no humans, um, I like. I also like the idea that that scred very much feels like uh, that was played by um, uh, Jerry. Uh, shoot, I'm suddenly blanking on the Muppeteer's name. Uh, feels very much like an early draft of the Skeksis. Um, so I'm. Well, sorry, I also ahead. like. I also like one of the concepts um, when you look at the production of this movie, the the synthesis of it, the beginnings of it, the the like where it, where it, the the stages where it started are very similar to Spielberg and E.T., right? It's a lot of it, early drafts are written, or at least a start is written when he's, you know, staying with his kids in a hotel and they write a story uh, with his daughter called The Crystal, right? Where basically they come up with this concept and they, they, they envision it out of populating the world with all these different creatures from his character shop. And I, I was stunned that, one of the things when I'm looking at it, right, you know, basically at some point he sees a, he sees a picture book. He sees, he wants to do a Grimm's fairy tale, right? He wants to 
basically he wants to go back to the visions of of childhood not necessarily being not unscary right um 80s became a time when we had a lot of kids movies and and animated things and were they were scary we 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 did the secret in them we this is in time in like lockstep with that um henson and oz were a big believer in making sure kids were not were afraid of things the idea that you you grow up a little bit better and with a little bit more semblance in your step if you're worried about where the next step is going and i found that fascinating i also found it fascinating that when you're looking at it when you're dealing with it and you're talking about um i think one of the biggest is an illustration book by leonard lubin right um and basically one of lubin's pieces in a uh, lewis carroll poetry book is just a bunch of alligators in like suits of armor yeah right right? um, no humans also approached um the fantasy illustrator Brian Froud, who you know this an this incredible film production design unmistakably bears his stamp uh, in terms of all the design and stuff. And there were you know at the time in the eighties there were art books of uh, Froud's that of his work for this movie that came out. And if you can track them down, they're just stunning, stu- stunning. Well, and every stunning. that's the that's the thing. Like the production design is the world building and the production design and everything built into it is absolutely um, insane. Uh, You know what I mean? I would say this is probably the most comprehensive and imaginative um, original for cinema piece of world building um, that we have seen from, from that point it remains unrivaled up until I, uh, 2009 when um, Avatar came out. I mean, I, between I, 1982 and 2008 or so, nobody could touch what Jim Henson and company were doing in this. Well, movie. the only one that could touch it, the only one—it's going to be our legacy. The only one that could touch it is has Henson himself, because he does it again with Labyrinth, right? I don't, I, I, I love good. Labyrinth, but I don't think I don't think Labyrinth is as intricate a piece of world building as this is. Because he has pieces, you're right. But I think it's, but like I was saying, it is what it is. It is pieces where you look at it and you just go, um, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, anyway. Um, okay, so Joe's commenting, we need the show before this one on our network too. And he stuck out (laughs) his tongue. I'm working on it, Joe. I'm working on it. Um, Joe, you need a movie show, a movie news show. That's the show he's talking about, Ken. Um, <laughs> and then Ken also writes, the 80s was awesome for fantasy movies. Yeah, it really it really was. Um, we've had more substantial fantasy movies, like with you know, with Lord of the Rings. When Lord of the Rings hit, it, they became more... Lord of the Rings and Potter kind of dominated the, the proceedings lately. Um, we, we've been doing this for what? Uh, about six months now? And we've covered, in just this, for the year of 1982, we've covered uh, Conan, Dark Crystal. Um, Secret of Nim. Secret of Nim. Um, I would, I'm not sure I'd qualify that as a fantasy movie, but um, did, we didn't do Crawl. You figure rats with magic powers aren't, isn't fantasy? <laughs> okay, I take that. Okay, back. you know what? Oh, hey, I'll, I'll step back. That's absolutely great. What I just work here. They don't even know what the fuck they're doing with the magic. Okay, fair. 
Yeah. They haven't gone to Hogwarts yet. Um, but you're right about the world building, and the world building is stellar. And and the idea that he saw this guy's concepts in a painting book, you know, that had to do with uh, fairy tales, and then he brought him in to work on the production design. It's pretty impressive, right? Um, uh, and so uh, the other thing about the design is that when he's working on the sketch, like one of the big production par parcels you look at is that Henson is working on uh, way bigger things than than anybody. Like when he's doing the script or when he's talking about the Skeskis and he's talking about the mystics, when you focus on the duality of man, that there are pieces of us that are evil and there are pieces of us that are good. And when he mixes together, we're usually better people, right? Or better, mm -hmm. more enlightened species. The idea that you're doing this in a family children's film in 1982 is pretty impressive. Um, when you're when you're making the production, when you're you're making this movie, and you're putting all these big themes in, uh, you know, the duality of man, the idea that you can have good and bad, the idea that, you know, uh, you know, his entire race is wiped out until he notices a new, uh, you know, until he finds Kira later in the movie. Jen has been is an orphan has been raised by, you know, his entire race has been wiped out, or so he thinks, right? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and there is, uh, you know, things in this movie, production-wise, where you go, where they weren't stopping Jim Henson from doing anything, like the little pod people that they put in the cages, and they just take them back, and then they suck the life essence out of them, and then they make them slaves, and it's like... Uh, you mean it's you dark, mean the proto-dozers from Fraggle Rock? They look like dozer, doozers, and then their eyes go white, and you're just like, holy shit. <laughs> um, like, Mommy, why are they sucking the life essence out of that people? To feed it to the Emperor so he can get new and young. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, where You're like looking at it, but, but the production design is so astounding. You know, every little thing, like the world is well built. The, the everything about it is just it it doesn't talk down to the kid in what he's dealing with thematically um i will say though that again on rewatch earlier this week um i was kind of struck by this is going to sound heretical i think the script itself in the, in terms of dialogue is kind of weak it's a mess uh, it's oh no mess. it's not heretical no, no, I, I they repeat, no. They repeat things often. Um, you know, like the the voiceover well, the, will say something, and then a character will just repeat it like three minutes later. Not to mention the fact that the entire first ten minutes of the movie is the it's so dense with narration that if you don't hear the narration and you somehow are paying attention to something else in your house, or a child might ask a question about the last sentence that occurred which may or may not have happened this week, Rich, while watching this movie. Um, what happened to this? What happened to the, what happened to the, the Gelflings? Okay. Let's hey, see if we can answer. They're not here anymore. Um, and so, but I, I think, I think you're right. Um, the script, like it's one of the biggest things about the movie. And I think it's something that has to be taken into account is that in all this production design, down to the very armor the Skeskis wear, 
to the the clothes that the mystics wear to the the ornate symbols on Jen's outfit to how the long striders move you know all of those things take very much a center stage versus a very basic script which is find a rock put the rock back in the other rock and uh, don't get killed or captured mm-hmm. um yeah it, it's a very simple fetch quest and um the one thing that that really struck me was and i had to laugh as i was watching it um jen gets to augur's place which by the way that set is it's beautiful it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> that planetarium the coolest yes the coolest planetarium uh, ever put on film yes and um yeah you know, he goes well what am i supposed to do with this crystal she's like i don't know and then as soon as the um and just right before uh, once he figures out which one is the right crystal she goes oh by okay playing now here's what you have to do by playing she, a she said she knows what to do with it and like five minutes before she's saying i don't know what to do with it you know it's like the script the script makes no sense no <laughs> there those- there and that's the thing i think the biggest thing about the movie the, the it's 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 its own tragic flaw we're gonna we're getting to it before we get to the critical reviews but it's mm-hmm. its own tragic flaw. The world building is so meticulous that the script is not as meticulous as the world building. So it's, as we've gotten older, it is innately more noticeable that the script yeah. isn't as well built as the world is. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 think, I think we kind of forgive it because we're just so entranced with that world. Yes. it's. Um, I would argue uh, the week that we're dealing with, uh, it is one of the reasons why Avatar is going to gross $1.5 billion or whatever it's going to do. It's going to do gangbusters. I, you know, and my review just dropped yesterday on Film Buff Online. I saw it last week. I would argue it's the same argument. It's insane. (laughs) I would argue it's the same argument. It's whatever we're immersed in. And and I think with this movie, with this movie, I think the thing about it also is, you know, if, if you're a kid, it's a challenge, right? I mean, it's it's a bit of a, for an hour and a half movie, it's a bit of a slog. There's not a lot of talk. There's very, like, there's a lot of narration, which kids love because they read books and that's what they get in books. But if they mm-hmm. miss any of the narration or like, I'll give you an example of a scene that I don't think is particularly well written and, and, and jumping on your your thing, okay? Okay. There's a sequence where they find the Gelfling village that is completely destroyed. There is no remnants of the Gelflings except for a giant prophecy that happens to be on the main wall of the first house they walk into. Mm-hmm. And not only does and- it give away the entire movie, right? It gives it literally gives away the entire movie on the wall, right? Kira can't read. So Jen's reading because he's been taught by the mystics. So you, like, as an adult, you're watching it going, well, uh, Mm -hmm. why is it written in mystic? Like, why? Like, Kira knows Gelfling. She speaks Gelfling. Jen doesn't speak Gelfling. So the idea that they walk into a house where the mystics have written all the stuff on the wall, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's (laughs) it's a big plot hole. I like one thing in that in that scene though, where he goes, "Oh, this is writing," and she's like, "Well, what's writing?" And he said, and he describes the written word as words that stay. 
I thought was a beautiful turn of phrase. Oh, there are, really there are beautiful things in the script. There are beautiful things in the script. But, but like, to your point, we see the, the pod people, <laughs> the pod people, and that's not they're ador- they're, I don't think they're the pod people. They're adorable. Now. The podlings that raised Kira all speak their own language. Kira was found by them as an infant and raised by them. How does she, how is she able to speak the same language that Jen speaks? Um, it's even, yes. though, even though none of those podlings are shown to be able to speak that language because Kira has to translate for them. It's, did- it's a mess. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, what I discovered in this viewing, and we'll talk about it in a moment. What I discovered in this viewing is that it is a, it is a wonderful mess but it is not the best written fantasy we're ever going to get. And it's certainly, it, to look at. it's really nice to look at. And also uh, from a, from a D and D perspective, if you, if you don't want to play a halfling, that's essentially Jen. I don't know what the fuck's wrong with you. <laughs> I, I come out of this movie going, that is what I want my halfling to do. I want him to have a flute. I want him to run in and out of things, in and out of buildings, very fast, skirching under things. You know what I mean? Um, but I think that's the thing about it. Um, Joe comments, I watched this movie in theater in, in 82, six years old with a group of friends and some parents. Some parts freaked me the hell out, but I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Yeah, there's, there is darkness. The darkness that Frank Oz and, and Jim Henson are going for is a Grimm's fairy tale darkness. It's, uh, I know we were raised on Cinderella Disney films, but in the original Grimm fairy tale, the sisters cut off their 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 feet to fit in the glass slipper. So, mm-hmm. you know, Little Mermaid died. You know, I, so these are all you know things. But what I would say is, um, the, the truth and the 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 truth that is in Jim Henson's movie, um, you know, is is an amazing thing. One of the things you do have to talk about, we always have to talk about, is that in a production from a production standpoint, um. And I, I want to bring this up because I know you know the name and I don't know that everybody knows the name, but they should. This movie is produced by a man named Gary Kurtz. Mm. This movie occurs in 1982. There's another movie coming out in 1983 called The Return of the Jedi that Gary Kurtz is not going to be working on. And so part of me, um, and, and why, why is that important, Rich? To me, when I see Gary Kurtz's name on something, there is a seal of quality that goes with Gary Kurtz and his production and his production prowess. He produced a little movie called the empire strikes back. He was also one of the only people that could tell a George Lucas to go pound salt. You know what I mean? <laughs> what you're he doing was, is crazy. Production partner. I think all the way back to um, at least American graffiti, if not THX one. Right. And he was one of the few people that could walk into a room with George Lucas and go, no, mm-hmm. we're not doing that. He and he was what, a governor, he was a governor on Lucas's impulses, and <coughs> once I would argue a much needed one, um, because once well, Rick right, McKellum once, prequels, Rick McKellum just said yes all the time and anything to the worst the worst impulses. But what I would say is for folks who don't understand or know about Gary Kurtz, this is a very like while it's not as great a script or whatever, the world building is there and it's a controlled world, world building. And I would argue that Kurtz left, uh, he worked on Empire Strikes Back. 
and him and George Lucas had a major falling out after Empire Strikes Back, where basically Gary Kurtz said, you're either going to make really good movies or you're going to make kids toys. And Lucas yeah, said, well, I think I can make and, and they, they had a falling out. And I, one of, the I think, one of the bones of contention there was when Lucas says, okay, and the Empire is building another Death Star. And Gary Kurtz was like, we've done that. Let's do something else. And Lucas was like, no, no, no. And they're building so, a second Death Star. Where I found real interest in this is that Gary Kurtz is helping Jim Henson build a world. And he has left the side of, of, of George Lucas. And it doesn't leave, it doesn't leave my mind that while 1982 has the Dark Crystal and a fully realized Jim Henson vision, we get Return of the Jedi, which is still a good Star Wars film, but it is not The Empire Strikes Back, and it is not A New Hope. And it mm -hmm. so the the wheels were a little bit off, and he's a very important producer in the history of Hollywood that I don't think gets all the credit. And when people bitch about Star Wars films, what I would say to them is, once we lost Kurtz and Lucas lost that voice, the person willing to go, no, your impulse is wrong. Actors don't want to act with blue, with blue screen or actors don't want to actors don't like, I remember one of the stories, one of the stories I think was um, from star Wars, right? Kurtz is working on star Wars and they had a job, the job of the hut scene that, that gets added to the special edition. Right. Um, and basically, you know, Ford is like upset about something and they, they, he goes to Ford and he says, look, do the scene the way he wants you to do it. And then the second take, do it the way you want to do it. And Ford goes, okay. And I also think it happened on empire, right? Where Ford basically, um, the, I love you. I know thing. Basically Kurtz gave Ford permission to go say what you want to say. And he goes, I don't, because the original script for Han Solo uh, in Empire is basically a much longer version, like a giant diatribe, like a, a monologue. And and Ford went to Lucas and said, no, it, it should be, I love you, I know. And that should be it. And Kurt said, go with that instinct. And they did, I guess they did a take where Ford did the whole thing where it was this long diatribe. And then they did, I love you, I know. And we know which one won. We know which one works better. And we know which one is, is now the gold standard by which we judge badass romantic gestures, right? Like, so Kurtz is a very important, like when I look back at like film history, Kurtz is super important. And I think the idea that he's working with Jim Henson here, it's like he moved on from one genius to the next, right? And it, it's, it's mm -hmm. a real interesting, he's a real interesting story. Um, it, it's amazing actually. Yeah. Um, two other names. Two other names in the uh, the credits that I saw um, that I always like to um, you know point out um, under additional performers, which basically is like if they were doing the Walking Mystics or the Walking Skeksis in long shots or whatever. Um, two uh, little people performers, uh, Jack Purvis and Deep Roy. Um, Jack Purvis, of course, uh, he did a lot of star, worked on all the Star Wars films. He played an Ugnaught. I think he played a Jawa. Um, and also in Time course, Bandits. Most famously was in Time Bandits. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm and sorry. As, um, and then Deep Roy, another you know uh, little person actor who has been in everything uh, from uh, the 1980 Flash Gordon through um tim burton's um charlie, uh, and William, or charlie and the chocolate factory where he played all the oompa loompas 
and I think he did a wonderful job there. And he he's in a Never Ending Story. He's in a bunch of stuff. And he is um, the snail almost, rider in Never Ending Story. Right. It's he's almost the, it's almost impossible to do uh, a movie that you have more than one little person in it without having Deep Roy showing up. And <laughs> he, he's somebody I've never seen him really interviewed or anything like that. And I'm like why people get on this i'd love to hear his whole story i think, I, I think he, I, I'd, I'd love to hear clear. it would be great um mm -hmm. the last one the last production thing i'd mention and it's kind of it's kind of an interesting thing two two things actually um oswald morris is the is the cinematographer it's the last film he ever shot mm -hmm. um and because he was he was actually he was retiring but he used the way he used the camera. He used he used a LifeFlex camera, and basically, he had a unit placed in front of the camera, which gave a color tint, so that it looked like a fairy tale, which I think is perfect. It gave it atmosphere. Um, and then the other interesting thing you dig up is that after the filming was complete, ITC Entertainment, which if you remember, the ITC logo was like three spinning letters ITC. Mm. They were sold and. It, it, basically there were producers on this movie at some point he actually Henson had to buy the movie and release it with his own money yeah because basically um, ITC entertainment went tits up yeah well that was that was uh Sir Lou grade if I'm remembering this correctly who was also ITC also produced the Muppet show um so that's basically you know kind of it just you know Jim Henson remaining in-house with uh the company. Um, ITC also also did uh, Space 1999, I think, and probably they were, yeah, they're a very good production firm. Yeah, Anderson uh, uh, shows there but, as well. But they went, they were they were sold, and they didn't they didn't like what they saw. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of uh, it's a tad foreboding. We understand how this works. <laughs> it's a tad foreboding. Um, because then you know the movie comes out. It's kind of foreboding, Rich. Um, uh -oh. So here's the thing. You know, you've what I love about the 80s movies is that they're challenging. What I also love about the 80s movies is some of the times they don't hit. Right? Some of the times where, like, you look up and you go, wow, how much was spent? What happened? Why did it not do as well as as we thought, like in our heads, like everything from the 80s, I don't know about you, but every time we go into these these things where I go, how much money did that make? I'm way off. I'm usually incredibly <laughs> way off. Um, like the night we, we had, I think the, the sh most shocking night was, I had no idea an officer and a gentleman made that much money. Like oh. I, I had no concept in my head, Rich, where that movie, that movie could make that much money, right? Well, that's this kind of a movie. Well, to to uh, tangent off there for a second, that kind of movie these days wouldn't make that kind of money. I don't think. Um, it's it's a mid budget movie. It's a mid range movie. It appeals mostly to adults. Um, it just wouldn't get that kind of traction. This is something a studio would make and say, "Shit, we got to throw this on on a streaming platform because no one's going <laughs> to the theater for it." So okay, so this movie ah. grosses grosses, right? This movie grosses. 40 million dollars roughly 40 41 million dollars um the inflated inflated adjusted box of us is 122 so we're talking 
a pretty big hit for the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. um, opening weekend, uh, it, it's on 858 theaters. It, it is one of the rare 82 movies that we talked about that expanded out. So it eventually got out to 1,052 theaters, but only opened on 858. Its opening weekend was only $4.6 million. So it lasted about seven weeks in theaters um, and expanded. So it, it's, it is a rare, it is a rare box office. Um, okay. Answer. Now the thing is this movie opens and it has everything breathing down its neck. It opens, it opens against Tootsie and the toy, which by the way, I don't know if you know this, Rich, I'm going to say this for you. You know, I, I think you do, but this is next week's movie. <laughs> and then this is the week after. So both these movies that we're talking about, Tootsie and the Toy, by the way, are going to be we're going to be discussing um, in the next couple of weeks. And they're basically we're talking about dealing with you know um, it, it kind of crippled this it crippled you know the movie we're talking about tonight at the box office. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird kind of like it's a weird thing. Um, but it did okay. We came out around Christmas. We're actually this is one of the closest to box office dates. 40 years to the day on our program. We're only three days off. It actually opened December 17th, um, 1982. So this is actually yeah. one of our closest box office days. I um, mean, we, we tried to do it better before and then it was just, <laughs> but. <laughs> I... <laughs> um, but, you know, in its third week, it moved up to second place. So like the toy and Tootsie dominate the end of the year for, for box office. But, in its second week, it moves up to second place and jumps over the toy, which is a little bit of an inclination of what's going to happen next week when we talk about the toy for Christmas. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that uh, this movie also has going for it, um, it, it is one of the headliners with regards to VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, any of the major video things. And, and even when it was acquired by... Jim Henson video and re-released and it gets the distinction of being one of the movies that gets watched and rewatched and watched again and rewatched and bought and rewatched and bought. It has Blu-rays. It has, it, I am surprised it doesn't have a 4k release. Well, I don't know what you would really do because it really does look okay. Um, when you rewatch it now, right. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. look bad at all. Um, but the box office for it, it doesn't necessarily justify how much it costs. So it grosses 40 million. It does cost. I think I was looking at it. Um, I think it was something about 17 or $18 million. Right. Is the, is the, is the budget for it. Which so is 40, pretty expensive. Uh, that's a very expensive. Yeah. For a, for a glorified children's puppet movie. Yes. <laughs> Super expensive, a dark, glorified children's puppet movie where there's torture, stealing one's essence to feed to an emperor, like in a juice barth kind of like weird way. Um, mm. So, but the box office doesn't do it near the justice with regards to other things. Like um, what I would say, one of the things that I, I think when we're talking about things and looking at things, it is a widely regarded movie, although it at the time. 
the critical response is super interesting on it, right? Mm-hmm. The time, the critical response is, of all the movies coming out, this is so dark. It, it, you know, um, it, almost all the almost all the negative reviews, um, and even some of the positive ones, right? Um, like I think my favorite, Richard Richard Corliss of Time, says the invention is impressive, but there's little indication of the Henson Oz trademark which is a sense of giddy fun. So even when they're making this world building and even when they're doing this giant thing, people are still looking for Muppets. Like, and I think, I, I think a funny thing could be like a Muppet Dark Crystal movie would be Fozzie going on a quest. I'm not saying I don't want to see it, Rich. I'm not saying to you I don't want to see it. But I think um, the review, like the negative reviews are almost all, um, this is way too dark for kids. This is mm-hmm. super dark. Um, what'd you dig up? Did you dig up anything interesting? Not really. You know, I kind of hit a couple of those, you know, this is too dark for kids things. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, kids were living still at that point. We're dealing with like the cold war we weren't quite having you know like the weekly uh you know atomic bomb drop and cover drills but you know it was still kind of like over our heads and if you know we were kind of semi-attuned to what our parents we hadn't were gotten doing. To the morning after yet yeah yeah we, we, we after was also this year um so you know that that whole kind of vibe was probably in the air so, you know, I kind of go back and forth. You know, I was 13 when this came out. Um, and I think maybe I kind of bypassed this movie when it originally came out thinking, kids movie. And, um, you know, because I was, you know, the really, you know, smarter than you, hipster know-it-all 13-year-old. Like all 13-year-olds are. I didn't know shit. I was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but... Well- no, I, I think that's part of it. Um, I, I, I am impressed. Like, when you look at Rotten Tomatoes, we, we like to discuss a little bit. 77% positive rema- tomatoes, right? Uh, critic mm-hmm. review. 81% audience score with over 100,000 ratings. So that means 81,000 people actively voted for The Dark Crystal. Um, you know... You know, uh, Corliss also goes on to say, as narrative, the incidents in the Dark Crystal are unremarkable. As the excuse for special effects, fanciful decor, and eccentric characters, they do nicely enough. And that's the thing. I think the crazy the crazy world building that happens in this movie, and like you were saying, I think my review is exactly what like you're saying. It is an immersion film. It is a, mer- a movie where you look at it and you go... Are you going to be part of this world or you're not going to be part of this world? If you're going to be part of this world, you're going to buy in. And if you buy in, like, you're going to come out of this movie uh, better for joining Kira and Jen on the on the, on the the journey. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I, I, mean, I know I'm going through this whole evening sounding like I'm very negative on this film. <laughs> I'm, no, ultimately, I think it's an incredible piece of filmmaking, even if it does have some deficiencies. I, I still like it. I own the Blu-ray. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of discovered it in college a few years, you know, after it came out, even though I had been reading about it in like Starlog and, um, some of the other, 
you know genre magazine you know genre movie magazines of the time yeah um you and i read the same goddamn magazines fantasy empire great short-lived uh semi-pro zine um and so i look back you know and i was like fantastic fantastic was another one yeah fantastic fantastic yeah um i'm glad i came to it when i did in college you know a few years later because i had a little bit more experience i don't think at at age 13 i would have really appreciated it i probably would have thought everybody is really screechy here i can't deal with this um but well, I and think- also and also i think you need an appreciation of like going to a you know the idea of how much work has gone into these sets and how much work has gone into these creatures oh and, and it's how- fantastic it's, it's so like, beautiful um and even a like those comments op- like that opening shot with um the skexies uh fortress on the plane and the lightning flashes in the river and stuff like that that's a beautiful model and, and, and the lightning goes- flashes in the river and then it goes into the trickle and it goes into the it goes into the the castle it's beautiful and you, have, you have that beautiful cloud tank work above um you know with the rolling clouds and everything that's you know it's all just there, amazing work I, are- th- that's the kind of stuff i miss when i look at and i go i miss good hard practical effects optically matted together that's the kind of stuff i miss because i think it's just stunning and as wonderful as you know computer generated imagery can be and trust me i've seen the the absolute pinnacle of it of the of the craft right now and that's in avatar the way of water um this stuff just this just has a certain appeal to me on a visceral uh aesthetic level i will tell you it's the pinnacle because i think the way the actors are talking about it is very aggressive like i watched sigourney weaver and i watched zoe saldana uh give interviews and Mm -hmm. uh, late night interviews where it's not really it's not really you know we don't really need to be serious here right um you know uh, jimmy kimmel made the mistake of calling it animation and she's like it's not animation don't say it that way no, and, no. They, they and and Zoe Saldana did the exact same thing to Corden the next night. So, mm-hmm. couple comments. As a teen, um, I like darker movies. I hated these the these teen John Hughes movies. We disagree there, Ken. I'm a big John Hughes fan, um, especially the darker John Hughes. Um, mm-hmm. And then Kathy writes, and I was the opposite. Laugh out loud. So Kathy, you're saying you weren't cool. You were a hipster nerd. Kathy she, saying she's, she's just the opposite. Hers. And then mm-hmm. I grew to appreciate the darker movies later on in life. Yeah, the darker movies give you something to latch onto, something to hope for. Um, and I think the biggest critique I can give in the movie is that they, they, I think what happened, Rich, is that they they put so much into the world building and how they're doing all these creatures that they didn't like. It's 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 very much the Ebby Calvin Nuclelouche thing, uh, and five cent five cent head and million dollar arm, right? It's um, and I think you're right. The script is the script is clunky. The narration is clunky. Like kids asking questions during narration is never easy. Like having, I literally had a pause. Um, Just click. I, I have to say though, I think I think we kind of lucked out in how we've been discussing this movie, and the fact that Avatar: Way of Water is opening this week because there's a lot of parallels there in terms of, um, yeah, somebody that, that does their own thing. Yeah, yeah. Cameron and, is know, very much Jim Henson ish. 
this is very you know they're both very much singular visions of their creator um and, well, and also and also they're both they're both making cutting edge things like uh -huh. the puppets in this movie are cutting edge uh -huh. <clears throat> and um the puppets are are amazing uh cameron's making cutting edge technology um yeah. i i would Jim you know it was always very much about you know cutting edge of puppet puppetry you know with adding servos and even you know later on in his life he was doing some things where um i'm trying to remember if it was on muppets tonight or if it was on um the jim henson hour where he had like these waldos were just like you know like a, a basic hand thing and it was wired to a computer and in real time they were getting you know rough rudimentary performance uh capture of like a parrot character and he would be sitting there puppeting this with just like this little glove thing that was on his hand and then you could see the parrot <laughs> character you know on a separate screen you know when so I he think was looking at he was that genius kind of he, he was he was an incredible genius um and part of part of one of the bigger disappointments recently with disney is the idea that we have not like we had we've had some up at things that were really good and then they haven't done all they could with the Henson Studios. Um, last thing we got to talk about when we talk about this movie or this and, and the legacy. So first and foremost, it has it has it had a movie sequel that never got made, um, but it did have a Netflix show uh, that lasted one season. Right. Dark Crystal Age of Resistance um, put up by Netflix. They spent a ton of money on it. It eventually got canceled. They are, they do have a lot of prequel novels and prequel comic books that are very much uh, a big basis for a lot of these things. Where, um, you know, um, even like somebody like Gennady Taratovsky, right? Basically, um, he's come in and, and tried to work with the property. There have been many tries and swipes and passes at from comic book studios. Um, the other major thing is that it is it is a fantasy film, and it is a dark fantasy film. So anything that comes after it has to be a, a swipe where he's given you the go-ahead. Jim Henson has said to you, hey, you can do something a little darker. So I'm going to give a legacy throw-out, shout-out. We don't get the dark, the dark, the Black Cauldron or some of the darker indie, indie Disney titles. And some of the darker things we're going to see, like something as silly as crawl, <laughs> which is a total world building thing on a, on a different level, but same kind of build, right? It, it's, it's got all the components to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would suggest too, that uh, the legacy of this movie is a lot of people who saw it at the right age, we'll call it in their tweens, what have you, grew up, showed it to their kids. And it's become a generational thing in part. And um, and it's become, you know, at least somewhat entrenched in the overall cultural zeitgeist because at the Henson exhibit at the um uh at the Smithsonian, they have two skeskis uh set up. At least they did several years back when I was there. And they also at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, New York. They have yeah. a permanent, they have a, an entire permanent Henson exhibit 
and it, so of course I was there when I had a chance and, you know, walk through everything and among like, um, you know, the original, you know, the Kermit used in, um, the Muppet movie and they show how this, you know, Henson did the setup for like Kermit sitting in the swamp singing among, you know, note open notebooks of like them jotting down ideas for the Muppet show. And I'm just like, can I just turn the page and keep reading this notebook? You know, that kind of stuff. They, they had some dark crystal stuff there too. Now the Netflix show was just starting to hit at the same time. So they might've just filtered some of the dark crystal stuff in to tie in with that. I don't know. I don't know if it's still there or not, but you know, for these two uh, important museums to devote space to it, I think you know speaks to its cultural impact. Well, and and I think I think through. I think that legacy side of it is that yes, Jim Henson did the Muppets, and yes, Jim Henson did Sesame Street, but mm -hmm. Jim Henson was a master puppeteer who was also trying to do a great many things, right? So this legacy portion of it is part is is just the master at work with all the creatures designed and all the different things. Like one of the things that you don't think about when you're watching it, but like the rock, not the rock guys, but like the crab guys that are kind of like the Skeksis, like uh, informers. Yeah. Like, you know, informants or mob boss guys, you know, yeah. yeah. Muscle. Um, you know, what you found out is you had to have a puppeteer in it, but the puppeteer uh, had his head down and everything around and controlled everything with a, a like a, a servo so it could move the head but he also had a roll and do things like just a yeah. bunch of stuff where they created it so the legacy is it it makes him a bigger version because what happens is you start out with the muppets and then you find out he's he you know the, the henson creature shop has done all these other things you mm -hmm. know like the fra yeah. like fraggle rock or whatever and it ties into that legacy, the bigger overall legacy that this guy just knew how to create interesting, incredibly well-designed uh, puppets that that took on a life of their own. And this movie is I, a yeah, I would beautiful suggest, representation of that. I would suggest even the, the complexity of these creations of the mystics of the Skeksis um, had was a, at a certain level, and if the Henson Creature Shop, and especially Frank Oz as co-director on this movie, hadn't reached that level. Frank Oz would never have been able to go on to do the far more complex um, job of creating the Audrey II in Little Shop of Horrors just a few years later. Um, because that thing needed like a dozen uh, puppeteers all working various... Uh, things in the lip movement and the head of the plant, as well as all the vines and everything. That was an incredibly complex job. And if the groundwork for, you know, multi-puppeteer characters uh, wasn't laid here, they never would have been able to pull it off the way they did. I would um, say, you know, it's just, again, that we always are seeing movies, you know, that we've talked about here through 1982 that are building foundations and laying the groundwork for other movies to build upon and, you know, do even grander things and bring grander visions to the big screen for us. Um, and, you know, some other, other legacy things that are actually occurring recently. Um, they're actually working on a role-playing game set in the world. Right. And oh, it was, really? yeah. Um, I, I think the river horse company is the name of it. Uh, they're working on a role-playing game set in the world of, of 
the the Dark Crystal Adventure game is what they're calling it. Huh. Uh, they're also they're also and this is a weird thing, but the Royal Opera House is doing a ballet called the Dark Od- the Dark Crystal Odyssey. Um, and this was as of March 2021. Um, Wayne McGregor is is doing the ballet and he described it as a coming of age story for family audiences. So it does, it is a movie when you experience it and you get it and you pass it out to others and especially like-minded people. And, you know, to a certain extent, the viability of creating all these different creatures on screen, you know, it has to tie in a little bit to Lord of the Rings or some of the things we've gotten recently, Harry Potter, like when they do a creature design for Harry Potter, when they're like working on Fantastic Beasts, which we're never going to have to see again. Or mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry, that was, that was a dig at Fantastic Beasts. Um, that was, <laughs> that was mean spirited. That was bad, bad JW. That was mean spirited. A little bit, yeah. It was a little okay. bit mean spirited. But every time you get a creature in a fantasy film, somewhere someone has seen a Jim Henson production. Oh God! Right. <laughs> and, and and oftentimes when you talk when you, they do interviews or like they talk about the dark crystal or they 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 bring it up and it, it's just it's a great movie and it's it's it has zero fucks to be given about being a kids movie it is it is flat out just a straight event adventure movie right um and i think it's 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 one of the great ones and it's it's also one of the ones where you know people tend to get a little bit confused um, and maybe they saw it and they did, they weren't ready for it like you were, or maybe they, they saw it later in life and they show it to their kids and their kids might have problems processing it. Like it happened to me. Um, Cause it is dark. It's so dark. Like rich trying to explain to a kid why you're taking the essence out of somebody is. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was like, it's like, I, I, I once showed um, my sibling, uh, when they were seven or eight, I showed them Gremlins, and my wife walked in, and as we we're watching it, um, she goes, "Isn't this the scene where uh, she talks about her dad?" And I looked at him, and she goes, "You know, she sent our sibling out of the room, and and you know, uh, and she goes, yeah, fast forward it, fast forward it, smart guy. You know what I mean? So you you, you get inadvertently caught." But the darker stuff is what you know. Kids not being safe is another is another legacy piece that has to be brought into. We don't have that anymore. We simply don't have it in the '80s films. There was a lot of danger, and that's one of the great things about them. Um, okay, so business for us that was that was a dark crystal business for us that we have to discuss. First business, mm. we're gonna get this out of the way. We have a very good friend. Uh, he does a good show on Friday nights. His name is Brandon. Um, no, what did I do? I did the wrong. Get rid of that. Uh, he has a big show coming up on this this Friday night. Uh, he has Richard Norton coming on, who's an actor, fight choreographer, martial artist. Uh, you may have seen him in the Octagon, Millionaire's Express. He does a great Hong Kong action film. I would highly recommend to people. Mr. Um, nice Guy and that's Mad Max Fury Road. So Brandon Brooks, Brandon Brooks, a great show, IOU. Industry Outlaws United on Friday night. Mr. Nice um, Guy, of course, is uh, Jackie Chan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, this guy's a really it, talented it, it, fight choreographer. So yeah. if you have questions about how those things are done, 
Brandon usually does a really good deep dive and gives a really great interview. So that's coming up on Friday night on the India Escape Network. I'm a I'm a big fan of Brandon. I'm Brandon is one of those guys that I've met twice, um, you know, in various places online and stuff, just going over show ideas and things. And he's super uh, nice. I've worked with him a couple times. Got to produce a show once. Um, and uh, so that's happening for him. Mm-hmm. Next week for us, we have this. We have this movie. We have this movie, this this weird, weird movie. Um, it it's does not have a great reputation. It's funny as hell, though. <laughs> It's I, funny as hell, Rich. Forever, so I'm looking. I'm actually looking forward to seeing. Uh, here's down the thing: the- I'm I'm a closet. I'm a huge closet Jackie Gleason fan, and I love Richard Pryor movies. But this movie is weird. It's because it's, um, I don't know. It's weird. It's about buying somebody, but buying somebody to take care of your kid. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's fucking weird, Rich. But it's called the toy. It's directed by Richard Donner. It's Richard Pryor and Jackie Gleason. Um who are maybe better separate. <laughs> uh, we also, have, this also movie, uh, just so we're clear, we might have to have him on to talk about it, but this is a weird tie to uh, the India Escape Network's own uh, Joe Ridgely. Cause he is, uh, he lost this role. This role is played by Scott Schwartz. This person right here in the center of the screen, uh, holding, you know, lighting a fire to, to Richard Pryor's foot. Um, beat out Joe Ridgely for this role. So Shocking. might have to, might have to ask him some questions about his audition. Um, but that movie's coming up this week or next week for Christmas. And then the last movie of the year, last movie of the year, ready? Boom. An incredible piece of work, a wonderful comedy starring Dustin Hoffman, Uncredited Bill Murray, Terry Gar, um, Jessica Lang, Dabney Coleman, a fantastic Dabney Coleman, uh, a very young Gina Davis, um, and just so many, so many people. Um, one of the great American comedies uh, that's coming up for New Year's week, mm-hmm. my birthday week. It's one of my all time favorite movies. Um, and that's coming up now. Also, before we get to the end, um, we're ta- we got to talk about this a little bit. Yep. Rich and I are doing Bond stuff for January. Um, so we're going to, what we're looking at, you have Connery here, Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, and Daniel Craig. What we're trying to do is to do a nice, eclectic stroll through Bond memory lane. Mm-hmm. And, and we what, want you, the viewer, to kind of help us pick which Bond from each era to. From each to era. So obviously Lazenby has to has to be one of them on on Her Majesty's Secret Service because uh, he only has one. Uh, but mm. everybody else, we, we we're going to open it up. We already have a pull up for the Connery Vons, um, and you know, and and we're we're going to get the other all of the other polls up by the end of the week. But we would like an idea, and even if you want to put a comment in, I vote for this bond for Connery, or I vote for this bond for anybody. We'll take the votes wherever we can get them. Um, yeah. and that is a great way to end it. Where can people find 
so much stuff because I know you're gonna have a cannibal story, uh, like right after we get done with the show. So <laughs> yeah, where can I, people find I, your I stuff? Like that. Um, where can people find you, Rich Trees, my my glorious co-host? All of my writing is at filmbuffonline.com, including uh, my Avatar review, uh, which dropped uh, yesterday, and then on um, what's today, Wednesday. On Friday, I will have um, a review dropping of the new Damon Chazelle movie, Babylon, which opens uh, next week. Um, oh, boy. That's a movie. Let me tell you. That's another three hours of craziness. Um, heard, heard it's uh, smutty. It's, heard it's gloriously uh, smutty. Oh, there are parts. Um, <laughs> that's all I can say right now. <laughs> Um, Got an embargo, I tell you. Um, hey, can I yeah, ask you a question? Uh, you were talking a couple sure. weeks ago. You were talking about the voting for the uh, Philadelphia Film Critics Circle. Did yes. we get? Did we get what you guys voted for? Or do we? When it's does that drop? List. It's on my list to get to. Um, oh, sorry. The, yeah. The uh, well, first of all, I wanted to throw a plug for the other podcast I do with my co-host Natasha Bogutsky, the Big Picture <laughs> Podcast. Um, we're on a couple of week break uh, because of uh, various projects uh, that we've been kind of working on that got in the way. Um, but hopefully we'll be back soon. I want to get one more in before the end of the year. And I think we will, um, but you can listen to past episodes at bigpicturepod.com or on the link at uh, filmbuffonline.com. Um, as JW just said, uh, the, I'm a member of the Philadelphia Film Critics Circle. We are in the process right now of voting for our best of the year. Um, we've watched all the movies. We've done our nominations. And now we're just kind of sitting around thinking about how we want to rank some of these uh, choices. Um, and I have to figure that out by Friday at midnight because on Saturday afternoon, uh, we will announce our best of the year for our critics group. Um I'll probably throw Can out a um, link to that when that happens on Twitter um, and leads me to my handle of uh, my Twitter handle of at film on Twitter. Um, you can also follow the Philadelphia film critic circle on Twitter. They have a website you can check out as well. Um, you know, so if you're interested in, you know, what uh, some of my colleagues are thinking about, in terms of best of the year, please feel free to check that out. And you might even see some films on there that you're like, I don't think I've heard of that. But I guarantee you just <laughs> looking at all the nominees, and I can't really say who the nominees are, but all of the nominees I think are entirely worthwhile. Um, so even if the ones that I wind up voting for don't win, there's still going to be really good movies on that on that best of list. Um, so guys, so, I, I don't want to get into it. I just want to get an idea of it. I don't want to know the actual movies that are being voted on. Do you guys mm -hmm. get, do you have a start with a list of like 200 movies are released of the year and then they give you a list 10 or 15 that you have to we, pick? We can, for, for our nomination process, we can nominate anything we saw during the year that was a 2022 release. Whether we saw it at Sundance you know, back in you know, back in January, or we but saw it. it like, will it be a consensus then? Will like whatever movies make every critic's list? How does that oh, work for, for our nominations? Yeah, uh, it would be like say, for example, wanna, I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna pick something from a previous from last year. year. Yeah, yeah, last year. Um, say for example. 
out of all the critics, King seven, Richard, 70, yeah, seven. Okay, say there's 20 in our group, random number, um, and 18 said, I'm going to nominate King Richard in Best Picture. Then, yeah, obviously it would be. Um, and it's basically, I think it's the top five vote getters in each category, which would be. And then they'll come to you and say, you have to vote on one, pick yeah, one of then, these. Yeah, boom. And then we okay. vote there. Do you have the so. amount right now? Do you have the actual nominees that you know that you have to pick? Yeah, yeah, I, can, I can't talk about them. But yeah, I I got the email on Sunday. And that's all I've been doing is like the last couple of days is Just thinking about hash it out. Yeah. Ooh, and it's this is why I tend not I have tended in the past not to do like best of the year list because I I, well, I was I, just I was talking you know, about on loud and nerdy tonight. I'm going to do I think I'm going to do a 10 best shows next week. And the following week, I'm going to do 10 best movies that I saw in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, so great. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm a, I am JW, the movie guy on Facebook and Twitter. And we have a loud nerdy, the page and loud nerdy, the group. Great things go on in the loud nerdy group, including, but not limited to stuff like tonight, which was uh, give me your favorite Christmas protagonist, Clark Griswold one over, uh, <laughs> over George Bailey and also over, over, uh, other people, buddy, the elf, John buddy, the, what was that? John McClane, John McClane was, was way down. John McClane tied with, yeah, fuck people. I can't stand people who don't think it's, uh, don't think the three <laughs> that I'm, I'm pushing hard for Christmas movies, Die Hard gremlins and, and Batman returns are all by any connotation, Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. And when somebody goes, well, what do you mean? They don't, how can you have Batman as a Christmas movie? <laughs> what I would say is, ask them how important mistletoe is to the film. So right out there. Is mistletoe tied to any other holiday? Mm -hmm. Nope. Is it? Is it a Christmas party that everybody realizes what the problem is at the end of the movie? Is it a giant Christmas party? Okay. Anyway, moving on. Just it drives me bonkers. Uh, but we do loud nerdy the group. Um, loud nerdy the page. All kinds of co cool things going on there. Um, we also spun out the the Whamageddon page from that. So I got I got nailed. I got crushed <laughs> last night, two nights ago, because um, I was doing my Wordle and I was also doing my Framed, and I was watching. Uh, I think I was watching Colbert, and there was a commercial for God damn Mariah Carey. Um, and so it was, it's Wham Mariah Geddon this year. So. Uh, but you can find us, uh, find us on all those things. Um, and, you know, we want to thank everybody at the Indie Escape Network and everybody for watching the show. We appreciate you joining us next week. We got a big we got a big show with the with the toy. Um, and then we're working on Bond and doing some different things. Thank you for joining us tonight. Stay out of trouble. Thank you so much, folks. Have